Good morning. The second reading is from Genesis chapter 2, and you can find it on page 4 of the Church Bibles. Genesis chapter 2, starting at verse 15. The Lord God took the man and put him in the Garden of Eden to work it and take care of it. And the Lord God commanded the man, You are free to eat from any tree in the garden, but you must not eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. For when you eat from it, you will certainly die. The Lord God said, It is not good for the man to be alone. I will make a helper suitable for him. Now the Lord God had formed out of the ground all the wild animals and all the birds in the sky. He brought them to the man to see what he would name them. And whatever the man called each living creature, that was its name. So the man gave names to all the livestock, the birds in the sky, and all the wild animals. But for Adam, no suitable helper was found. So the Lord God caused the man to fall into a deep sleep. And while he was sleeping, he took one of the man's ribs and then closed up the place with flesh. Then the Lord God made a woman from the rib he had taken out of the man, and he brought her to the man. The man said, This is now bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman for she was taken out of man. Thank you very much, Sarah, for reading that to us. Please keep it open. I think that I nicked from this week's passage, verse 15, last week. So we're really going to get underway with verse 16. But let's pray anyway before we uh, look into those words again. Father in heaven, we thank you that you are a God who speaks and you speak to us for our own good and for our blessing. We thank you for the uh, simple privilege of being able to meet together today. We've heard of churches where that can't be happening at the moment, but we thank you that we can join together uh, with Bibles open without uh, fear of the consequences of that. And we pray that your word would dwell richly amongst us this morning, that we'd know it's your voice we're hearing, that we'd be able to share it with each other, um, think more about it, and bring our lives and our hearts into harmony with it. And we need your help for that, Heavenly Father. We pray with lots of questions on our minds with uh, a passage like this in the Bible. 
Uh, we need your help. We need your mercy. We pray it would be granted to us in Jesus' name. Amen. I guess you've um, surely contemplated in the past how important to us the idea of beginnings is. Um, and even me saying that, without trying very hard, you'll think of lots of examples. Some of them probably very homely and personal. Uh, for example, we always want to know when a couple first met, don't we? I didn't ask Susie's permission for this, but my wife, Susie, can remember exactly where she first saw me on Staircase H in Ridley Hall in Cambridge. Uh, my recollection of that meeting is that it was a bad first meeting. I had to send a, a letter of apology to her, but that got me out of the penalty box, as it were. I recall another staircase encounter early on with Susie, the first peck on the cheek I gave her at a nightclub in Cambridge. And I ought to say, for the record, this is the last time ever that I went to a nightclub. <laughs> You'll be telling me how to get out more. Anyway, um, not just in our own life stories that we find beginnings interesting, is it? Um, this has slightly gone out of the news now. I think that the, the Large Hadron Collider is on hold for a couple of years, getting some upgrades at the moment. But it was a big stir when it, when it happened, wasn't it, when it was first devised. There it was, 570 feet under the ground, under the Swiss-French border, just outside Geneva. This massive circular tunnel, uh, the circuit length is something like 17 miles, which, of course, housed the all-important particle accelerator. And massive amounts of money, billions and billions of dollars, Huge human resources, thousands and thousands of scientists from loads of different countries. Um, yes, there were the inevitable technical difficulties. Uh, bizarre breakdown got blamed on a bit of crusty French bread getting stuck in the machinery at one point. And as I said, it's been paused for upgrades now. But you ask, what's it all about? Why were people into that? Well, surely it was a quest in... I mean, wherever you put yourself on the sort of faith spectrum, people were saying this is a quest to recreate, hopefully in a safe environment, the moment which started the universe off, or rather the moment a billionth of a second after the Big Bang. That was how people understood it and why it was important. Beginnings are hugely important to us. And naturally, the Bible takes that very seriously as well. So we've been looking in the mornings, at how scripture takes us back to the beginning, to God as our creator, for us to understand our human origins. The legendary golfer Jack Nicklaus uh, used to return every year, he had a sort of ritual to go back to his golfing coach and ask him every year on the threshold of the year, teach me again how to play golf. Not like he needed lessons in one sense, but he knew he had to return to the fundamentals of the game if he was to keep playing good golf. And my hope for this series in Genesis as we go through it week by week is that however familiar we are with the Christian, Christian, Christian message, going back to these first few chapters of the Bible will help us to see more clearly on lots of different aspects of life. And this passage is no exception I've got boring headings, I'm afraid. I want to think about the vertical relationship it speaks about, the relationship between God and the man, and then the horizontal relationship, the man and the woman, as that's unfolded.
But let's think first about the relationship between the God and the man, the vertical relationship, and I want to reread verses 16 and 17. Verse 16. And the Lord God commanded the man, you are free to eat from any tree in the garden, but you must not eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, for when you eat from it, you will certainly die. Well, the heart of this expression of the relationship between God and man, the vertical relationship, is a double command from God. It contains, first, a permission. You are free to eat from any tree in the garden, God says, including, of course, at this point, the tree of life, which was mentioned in the passage we looked at last week, a tree which symbolizes life with a capital L, the life of knowing God. And that tree was there, and they were free to eat from it. Every time the man ate from that tree, it was a physical reminder to him that his very life was a gift from God, and that central to that life was the eternal friendship he was made to enjoy with God. So there was a a permission, a large area of freedom. That tree was okay, and all the others bar one, which God was happy for man to choose as he wished from. And if you allow me a bit of speculation, I'm borrowing from Gary Friesen, who has a lovely little piece about this. I guess that this might have given rise to quite a bit of domestic debate when Eve joined Adam. What are we going to have for supper today, darling? I've got some lovely juicy apples here. Do you think God wants us to have them? And Adam checks at this point the notes from his recent quiet time with God. You are free to eat from any tree in the garden but one. Oh, go for it, my love, he says. They'll be perfect. Yes, but how are we going to have them? Should we have them raw or stewed or baked or diced in fritters? Well, let me just check. I don't think it matters, says Adam. You're free to eat from any tree in the garden is what God says. How we prepare it doesn't matter. It's up to us, in fact. And at this point, he opens up his backpack and out falls a mango, a grapefruit, a couple of kumquats, a pineapple, And you're waiting for this one, aren't you? A passion fruit. If we're free to eat from any tree in the garden, he says, let's be adventurous. Let's mix them all up. I've got the perfect name for it. We could call it fruit salad. Now, sorry, forgive all the speculation. The point is simply this. A generous God gave that broad, generous permission. And yet there was also a prohibition, one tree definitely off limits. You must not eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, for when you eat from it, you will certainly die. What are we to make of that? We scratch our heads. Why does this one tree matter? And I suppose it could even seem slightly arbitrary and unnecessary for God to keep this one tree to himself in our minds. But you see, that's exactly the point. Once God has said this word, not this tree, then every time Adam saw that tree, he'd be confronted with the fact that God was in charge. That Adam's part as God's creature was to do God's will without questioning it. And the point of the tree's name is that God reserves the right to define what's right and what's wrong. He knows what is good and what is evil. Man's responsibility is to let God be the judge of that and to do what God tells him to. 
In the House of Lords, I gather there was once a foreigner doing a guided tour there. I'm going to draw a veil over his nationality. I hope my accent as I impersonate doesn't uh, give it away too much. But anyway, at one point, he went over to an impressive-looking chair, and he asked an attendant what it was. That, sir, is the royal seat occupied by the monarch of the realm for the state opening of parliament. Well, the tourist wasn't easily put off. He put his hand on the rope across the seat, and he asked the attendant, do you mind if I have a quick go, please? And you know without me telling you exactly what the answer was. No question. For man, in this situation in Genesis 2, there's a vast area of unfettered freedom. Just one area roped off. He must not attempt to push God off his throne. To occupy that position is God's prerogative. Because he is God. He knows what is good and evil, and we are not at liberty to act as if we know better, as if we can rewrite the rules. And that, in fact, is our big temptation, not just, I suppose, to have a quick go at being God, but to dedicate our lives to that ambition. And, of course, God's motivation for the prohibition is entirely loving. He wants the best for us, and to let him be God is absolutely the best way for us to live. Hence that warning that to eat from that tree would be deadly, be a disaster. When you eat from it, you will certainly die, God said. And in just one chapter, that's exactly what Adam discovered, because when mankind ate from that tree, God's judgment was to bar them from the tree of life. They couldn't get back to eat from the tree they had been allowed to eat from. As the Bible unfolds, only one man since those days has ever let God be God and call the shots throughout his life. His name was Jesus. So where Adam failed to obey, Jesus obeyed. Where Adam grasped at equality with God, Jesus actually surrendered everything, obedient even to death on the cross. And the impact of that, of course, the result was that uh, the way back to friendship with God, to the tree of life, could be reopened and ultimately Eden restored. And that is the supreme covenant, as the Bible sees it, between humanity and God in and through the Lord Jesus Christ. But it had its beginning, didn't it, in Genesis chapter 2, in the original word from God, a permission and a prohibition. And you will see that sort of covenant theme unfolded again and again in the pages of Scripture. It ought to be expressed in our own lives as we enjoy a great area of freedom that God's given us. He doesn't prescribe on all the details of life, but there are definite prohibitions that express to us that idea that we must let God be God. He knows good and evil and tells us how to live. I was wondering, uh, just simply, we often talk about having our own personal quiet time, don't we? There's no verse in the Bible that says you have to use notes and have a quiet time of a certain length of time. But actually, the very physical act of opening up the Bible and reading the word from God day by day is, in one sense, equivalent to having that tree, how it would have been for Adam and Eve later on. The idea that we say to God as we turn to the Bible, and really, 
quantity is less important than quality. 50 minutes is, is in one sense, insignificant if for 50 seconds I can say I'm turning to the word of God so that I can say to God straightforwardly, I let you be God in my life. You call the shots. I don't say I know what right and wrong is untutored from you, God. I wonder if you've even done that this morning. If you've actually opened the Bible and said, God, speak to me. I need you to show me the way in life. If you haven't done that, I want to encourage you to take the time to do that uh, at some point pretty soon. You can do it in the service, but you can certainly do it later. Grab the time to say, I want to let God be God and make sure that vertical covenant is in place. Well, let me move on from the vertical relationship between God and man to a horizontal one between the man and the woman. Um, Let me read verse 18. I suppose the lion's share of the passage is this little section uh, up to verse uh, 23 we had read, didn't we? Verse 18. The Lord God said, It is not good for the man to be alone. I will make a helper suitable for him. And the dominant idea I want to focus on is the partnership of male and female. Um, It's amazing, isn't it? As God surveys his creation, having said all along it's good, now in Genesis 2, for the first time, God remarks on something that is not good. Verse 18, the Lord God said, it is not good for the man to be alone. I'll make a helper suitable for him. In other words, the man he's created is not designed to be a solitary being, but a social being. Adam and all of us after him are made, created, to participate in relationships. In fact, it probably flows from the teaching we had in chapter 1 about being in the image of God. You remember how there God said, let us make mankind in our image. God isn't a loner, but a unity of three persons, Father, Son, and Spirit. And mankind in his image is meant to love and be loved, to give and receive in ongoing relationships as well. Now, that doesn't mean that everyone must marry, necessarily, as if the sum total of our relationships was to be the the lifelong, exclusive relationship of a man and a woman. In fact, and I don't know if it's slightly tongue-in-cheek, Paul refers to this verse very specifically saying, it's good not to marry in some circumstances. So it's not an absolute. For many people, the need for relationship results in one life partner of the opposite sex. But for all of us, especially if we're not married, we're wise to have lots of friends of both sexes and so reflect this idea of partnership between men and women. Hence, in Genesis 2, you get the parade of the animals, which follows on from this verse, introducing it, verse 18, as if while Adam is classifying them, The question is out there, will one of them do as a partner for Adam? When he finally gets to Zed in his logbook and enters the last zebra, we see there's still no companion for him. Um, Top of page five, you get the last little sentence of verse 20. It's almost coming back as a sad echo of what God had said before. But for Adam, no suitable helper was found. So we might talk about dogs being a man's best friend. But still, there's a gap, isn't there? Still at this point, you get the first operation 
performed under anesthetic at this point. 21, so the Lord God caused the man to fall into a deep sleep, and while he was sleeping, he took one of the man's ribs and then closed up the place with flesh. Then the Lord God made a woman from the rib he'd taken out of the man, and he brought her to the man. And it's rather nice. What follows in verse 23 is the top hit in the first ever music charts. Adam's love song goes straight into number one. I'm, you think I'm being flippant, don't you? But don't you think he burst into a song? Don't you think he did a backflip at this point? The man said, this is now a bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called Wu-man, for she was taken out of man. That's, I suppose, how we would do it if we were experts in the original language. So a, a pun going on there. At last, he mustered thoughts. This is what I've been waiting for. You ask what he's so excited about. Well, it is the partnership that is being stressed by those verses. That's what gets his pulse racing. The man and the woman are suitable for each other in a way that the animals beforehand have not been. Basically, there are a couple of strands to that little bit. First, the similarity of men and women. The animals, you see, were just not similar enough. What was needed was a partner taken from the man who would therefore correspond to the man. As he puts it, bone of my bone, flesh of my flesh. Now, of course, similar is not identical. So notice, secondly, their diversity. God didn't create another man, but wu-man, as it's put there. Isha, I think, is the correct phrase I'm looking for. Now, several things follow from that. To begin with, that diversity is contrary to genderless thinking, that trend where we blur all distinction between man and woman. I'm doing headlines here. I'm sorry if I whiz over things so fast, but I'm trying to cover the ground, and hopefully we're free to discuss it and think it through more. The diversity of men and women is also contrary to homosexual partnerships, by which I mean exclusive same-sex, one-to-one partnerships. God's intention in creation was for man and woman to meet each other's needs for companionship. Biblically speaking, if you take it back to creation and to Genesis, to disregard that teaching is actually to fly in the face of the simple facts of nature. It's the way we were made. And it probably wouldn't take even a five-minute biology lesson in one sense to convince us of that. For the purposes of marriage and a sexual relationship, only a woman provides the fully compatible one-to-one counterpart and companionship a man needs. Now, one other, if that's not controversial enough, I'll go for another one. There's another different aspect of that diversity that I perhaps should mention Underlying these verses, as the rest of the Bible unpacks them, there is a diversity of roles because there are certain definite distinctions of role between men and women which the rest of the Bible expands on. So the New Testament, for example, draws from the fact that the man was created first the lesson that the responsibility for overall leadership in human families and in God's family, the church, rests normally on men, not women. Now, let me enter some caveats. That doesn't mean for a moment that men and women are in a pecking order 
with men above women. We saw before that men and women are created as equals. They're equally in the image of God, equally involved in that command to be fruitful and multiply. Another caveat, this is no justification whatsoever for men to act as bullies or bulldozers, pushing women around or barking out orders, or to be passive and withdrawn and abdicate responsibility. That stereotype of a a man plopping himself down in front of the TV and demanding his supper, that is not what the Bible means by a man exercising headship and a woman being a helper. So there are caveats. But the New Testament does see it as significant that man was made first and that Adam was given the command about which trees he could and couldn't eat. He was the original guardian of God's word. He was meant to teach it to Eve and to ensure that neither he nor she broke it. Man's headship's got to be loving self-sacrificing, protective and caring leadership and responsibility. But it is still headship as far as the Bible sees it. And the woman, for her part, is a helper. And again, that in no way implies inferiority. In fact, it's a word that God uses to describe his own dealings with his people. So that diversity, if I've got it right here, it ought to show in the marriages of our church family. It ought to show in other relationships within the church family. And we might usefully ponder if it also finds expression in some way in other male-female relationships. Although I don't think there's necessarily a huge amount to go on, on the Bible in the Bible on that front. And if we find it hard to see how we can be equal and different, that's probably because of two wrong assumptions that are very common in our status-obsessed day. We wrongly assume that for two things to be equal, they've got to be absolutely identical. And then there's a flip side to that. We wrongly assume that for men and women women to be different, one must be better than the other. Wrong assumption number two. No, we mustn't think of male and female as two identical things, two identical creations, or I was going to say... Two identical pound coins, if you're thinking of things that we often be find no, no difference at all. That would be an illustration of that. We'd be better off thinking of um, male-female as a nut and a bolt rather than two identical pound coins, where a nut and bolt have, both have different roles, but both are vital, and neither of them really can operate effectively without the other. I'm struggling for images that will help us on that. But by creation, we are equal, and we were designed, teaches Genesis 2, for combination with differing responsibilities. One of the Bible's commentators is a guy called Matthew Henry, and he, I had a bit of speculation earlier. I don't know if this is speculation from Matthew Henry, but it captures, I think, what he says, the warmth of the Bible's true vision of partnership. He says, the woman was made of a rib out of the side of Adam, not made out of his head to rule over him, nor out of his feet to be trampled by him, but out of his side to be equal with him, under his arm to be protected, and near his heart to be beloved. 
Well, it's time for me to stop. Um, as I said, we've gone at breakneck speed over some pretty weighty matters. I'm sorry if I've trodden on toes. I'm happy to field questions and discuss things more, obviously. It's time for me to stop, though. And I don't think it is an accident that the two relationships, vertical and horizontal, we thought about, are there side by side in this passage. They follow on from each other in this biblical account of our origins. There's the vertical relationship between man and God and the horizontal relationship between man and woman. And I put in shorthand ASLS, which stands for All Saints Little Shelf. And I think that's meant to remind me about our vision statement as a church, which we came up with 10 years ago. And with hindsight, there are all sorts of things where it was slightly weak and we could tighten up and improve it. But it was that we wanted to be reaching out and growing together. The, the confusion often uh, came with that second one, that we're growing together, because we intended it when we came up with it as the church council to be growing together in our relationship with Christ. But because one always abbreviates these things in our thinking, we, we tended to focus really on our relationships with each other, that we're just sort of growing together. Well, you can't have decent Christian relationships with each other unless the vertical relationship is right. We wouldn't be able to just have sort of uh, chin-wag sessions where we just got to know each other well without an open Bible. Actually, what happens on Sundays um, drives all the other meetings where we meet with each other. We value those relationships because they are in part an expression of that relationship, the vertical one. It means actually that I mean, we're horizontal at the moment in the sense that we're, we're together talking with... But the Bible is key. Actually, my great contribution in the church should be my relationship with God before it is my relationship with each other. In the marriage, it's the same. In a marriage, we know that where people are seeking to live for Christ and keeping their relationship clear with him... It'll be on a much better fitting in all normal circumstances for them within the marriage relationship. These two relationships belong together. It's as we let God be our God vertically that our relationships horizontally will yield the intended partnership. Well, let's pray that that be so and turn to pray now. Just a moment to pause and reflect to start with. Maybe some of us know very clearly of areas in our lives where we're reluctant to let God be God. Perhaps just take a moment of quiet just to bring that area, that struggle to God in prayer. And if you're at the moment not willing to let God be God, you might just quietly pray that God would make you willing to be made willing.
Father, all of us are involved in different relationships within this church family, whether we're married or single or divorced or widowed. We thank you for your amazing faithfulness to us, that you love your people with an unquenchable passion. You're committed to them for time and eternity. And we pray that we'd all grow in that relationship and help us, therefore, to grow in our differing partnerships with each other, male and female, within the church. We thank you that your way is best. We commit ourselves afresh to to knowing that better and praying for it to be worked out in all the differing ways we relate to each other. God, we pray you'd have mercy on us, uh, work in us where we're broken or damaged in some way or resisting you in other ways. And we pray for great fruit in our lives as individuals, in families, in the church family as a whole, and indeed beyond. We ask it, Father, for Jesus' sake. Amen.